0: If you'd stay standing with me as we come now to the Bible, we're looking at John chapter 14. You'll find it on page 901 in the church Bibles. The Bible's either in the pew rack in front of you or underneath your seat. Uh, we're in a mini-series in John's Gospel where we're looking at how Jesus responded some questions that he was asked by his disciples. Um, he had announced that he was leaving, and uh, then his disciples come to him with some understandable questions. Imagine if a good friend of yours just said, I'm off. And so you'd have questions. Well, similarly, and much more, now that uh, he said he's leaving, they've got a lot of questions. Where are you going? Why are you leaving? And uh, in particular, they begin to circle around some issues of his identity. Is it really true that you, Jesus, are the only way to God? And he answered that, yeah, because... I am God. That's why I'm the only way to God. But, but then they come back and say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that for sure? And we saw last week that he said that, well, because God has rid himself into the story of our lives through, through Jesus himself, through what he said and done, through, through the living church of God, through what Jesus' followers are saying and doing, and through what the Spirit is saying and doing in us who follow Jesus. But now we come to another question that arises from that, which is, well, okay, if that is so definite and so sure and so certain, why is it that not everyone gets it? As we put it in the title of the sermon, why do some people not get it? Uh, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, Judas of James, Judas probably son of James and other disciples, ask this question, and then we're going to see Jesus answers it. So it's John chapter 14 and we're going to read from verse 22 where Judas, not Iscariot, Judas of James, the other disciple, asked this question and then through to verse 31 uh, where Jesus concludes his answer. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So the question we're asking ourselves this morning, the question the Bible passage in front of us is asking this morning, is why is it that some people do not get it? That is, why is it that some people don't really understand uh, perhaps, uh, this is a very relevant question, I'm sure you'll realize when I just open it up for us a little bit. Perhaps you have um, shared your faith at work, and there's one person you're sharing your faith with that really gets it. They come alive, and yet there's someone else that you've shared the same thing with, but, but they don't get it. Well, why is that? What's the difference, and how can we help that person to get it? Or maybe it's a, a family member. You've all all your family in roughly speaking the same environment, and yet perhaps there's someone in your family who, despite being exposed to the same ideas, the same teaching, the same church, the same family, they don't get it. It doesn't connect for them, this Christianity thing. The the penny has not dropped. Why is that, and what can we do to help? Or let us be honest, it's even more personal, isn't it, this, the relevance of this question? I mean, there are times when it seems like that we, we ourselves don't quite get it. Oh, there are moments when we feel very excited about Christianity and, and, and all the rest, but there are other times when, when if we're honest, we, we don't get it. It doesn't really connect with us. We, we, we feel very distant. It doesn't seem real. What is the answer to this question? What I'm going to do, do, do is, is to share with you a story about a person, not, not a real person, a fictitious person, but like an identikit of many different conversations I've had with various people. And what I want as I tell you this story is for you in your mind to be thinking through what you would say to help this person get it. His name is George. George grew up in a religious home uh, of a Christian kind. He was exposed to church, dragged along with all the rest of the family. And uh, George was a good boy. He wasn't a rebel. He played by the rules. As he grew up, uh, he uh, then, uh, uh, after high school, went off to college. He went to a Christian college. And again, of course, he's exposed to Christian teaching, Christian ideas, Christian moral principles. But, but George, all the way along, something about it didn't connect for him. He didn't seem to really grasp it. It, it didn't feel too real for George. After um, college, uh, after he'd been to to Christian College, he um, he graduated, of course, and then took a job in finance. He uh, worked downtown Chicago, commuted in on the train each 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 day. A couple of years later, he decided that he was ready to get married, and so he went to a Christian dating website and, after you know, uh, began dating someone. And in due course, eventually, they got engaged and married. George is now 35. He has two children. But George feels stuck. When he uh, says this to his friends, um, some of them will say to him, The answer is God. Uh, But then George uh, comes back with his reply, which is, well, if the answer is God, then I really don't know what the question is. He feels stuck. George has gone back to that uh, dating website and put up an anonymous profile, and he's began to scan down the options to see what else is out there. what would you say to George? How would you help George get it? Why is it that God shows himself to some people but not to others? How do you help with that? Well, that's the question in front of us. And Jesus has three parts to, in a sense, one answer. The one answer could be illustrated by uh, Alfred Tennyson, the Victorian poet, who one time when he was thinking about this... Uh, poetically sighed. What, what, it's like, oh, that a new man would rise in me, that the old man would cease to be. And what Jesus is saying is that needs to happen, both in terms of our heart, in terms of our ears and our eyes, what, 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 we, what we love, what we listen to, and what we look at. First, what we love. This is verses 23 and 24. And Jesus there says that if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. In other words, if you really want to obey Jesus, if you really love Jesus, then, then inevitably you're going to want to obey him. Now, he's not saying that we will always perfectly do everything that he wants. Of course, we wrestle and struggle with various issues. But there'll be a desire. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Yes. But of course, I don't know about you, but I've been in many religious circles over the years when I've asked myself the question, would it really make any difference if Jesus actually showed up? Is there actually an interest in God? Or is it just churchy stuff? Are they actually interest in Jesus or is it just religious stuff? There was a pastor uh, at the last Great Welsh Revival who was asking himself this question about the church that he was pastoring. What he decided to do was to begin a uh, new meeting just for young people. And this meeting went on for a little while and uh, nothing much happened. And so the pastor decided he tried something different. He asked right there in the meeting for individuals to stand up and say what they thought and felt about God. Not what they thought and felt about theories about God. Not what they thought and felt about church, but what they thought and felt about God. There was silence. He asked the question again, just just stand up right now and, and tell us all what you think and what you feel about God. Silence. And then one young teenage girl, 14 years old or so, raised her hand and when the pastor noticed and acknowledged her, she stood up and in a trembling voice she said, if no one else will say... I do testify that I love God with all my heart. It was the spark for revival. What about us? Do we actually love God? John Stott said this one time. He said, if we seek, we will find But we do not want to find, and therefore we do not seek. For the surest way of not finding is not to seek. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. We say, fine, but then how do I? How do I have my heart softened? How do I love God? Well, (laughs) A, B, C, A, admit See, George knew somewhere deep down that there was a a bigger problem than just kind of circumstances. It it was really a heart thing, but but he didn't want to admit that. He didn't want to face reality. But would we admit, if that's where you are, just admit, say to God in the quiet, Lord, I don't love you. I wish I did, but I don't. Admit. Then believe. The channel through which the Holy Spirit softens our heart is trust to trust God with your life and then see, commit. But you say, well, that's all very well. I mean, how do I actually, I mean, believe and commit? Those are big things. How do I get there? Well, Jesus doesn't just say, love God. He also says, listen, listen to the Bible. And this is verses 25 and 26. And uh, these verses often trip people up because they mention the Holy Spirit a lot And whenever the Holy Spirit is mentioned in church circles these days, we tend to think it means something strange or mystical or out of the ordinary, uh, uh, something that is um, sort of like a promise of some new enlightenment or new revelation, a sort of extra spiritual perception, a sort of ESP, if you like, that has been promised by Jesus to those who follow him. But that's not what's going on at all. Remember the context. Jesus is speaking to his apostles. He's promising them that the Holy Spirit would come and cause them to remember all the things that Jesus has taught. And therefore, the apostles will be able to teach the New Testament church and lay the doctrinal foundation for the New Testament church to teach, to write, to authorize, the new testament and so i say in summary listen to the bible for the apostles of course confirmed the authority of the old testament too listen to the bible the apostles are very aware of this authority that they have been given by jesus peter says of of paul he says of paul's writings our brother paul writes some things that are difficult to understand and those of us who read paul would say amen to that our brother Paul sometimes writes things that are difficult to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. They were writing scripture. Or Paul says of himself that, that, he, that he had authority not to tear the church down, but to build it up. He, he understood that. Or John says in 1 John, the way you know that the Spirit is, is working in an individual or not, or a movement or not, is whether they listen to us. That is, listen to the apostolic we, the, the royal we. Listen to the apostles' teaching. What about you? What about us? Do we listen to the Bible? You see, George knew a lot about the Bible at one level. But most of all, he was more interested in what people said about the Bible. He could quote from what John Piper said or what John MacArthur said or what Chuck Swindoll said or what Francis Chan said. Oh, he knew all that. But he didn't really listen to what God was saying in the Bible. What about you? Do you come to church saying, Lord, would you speak to me? Or is it for you more theory? Theory? more set of ideas it's the voice of the spirit pointing to Jesus through the apostolic word is that for you J.I. Packer said that after his lifetime of studying the Bible the best way of describing it was this the Bible is God preaching or preaching sounds too pulpit like for you too formal for you the Bible is God speaking it's something living now now His word, his voice now. The first time I realized this was when I was a teenager. A friend of mine just loved the Bible. And the particular Bible he loved was the living Bible. And little did I know that I'd end up living in a place where the living Bible was published. But he loved that Bible. For him it was Jesus speaking to him. Right there and then. Is it that for you? I know there are complicated hermeneutical interpretive questions that we have to get right and all that but, that's, but is it for you actually God preaching not what he said but what he's saying what the Lord is saying to you, you listening to the Bible and say how do I do that? Well our children are getting a little bit older, at least some of them these days, and so we're thinking about college and all the rest, and we're becoming more aware of what you need to send children to college. There are various tests they have to take. One of those tests is the SAT. Well, here's an SAT for you about listening to the Bible. S, spiritual. Not theoretical, spiritual. Actually, the voice, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, the voice of the Spirit pointing you to Jesus spiritual audible most of the Bible was written to be heard to hear it as a voice now of course there are apps these days that can read the Bible to you but I mean a bit more than that I mean actually going to the Bible whether it's in your quiet time or church and going to it and say Lord I want to hear your voice I need to hear you will you speak to me not just words on a page but a voice Audible, and then T, S-A, and then T, total. Many of the times that people get tripped up by the Bible, it's because there's some part of the Bible they don't quite understand or agree with, perhaps. If that's you, let me encourage you to take the time to connect with a pastor or older Christian leader and just ask the questions you have about this, that, or the other part of the Bible and how you can understand it and believe it, for it is all God's Word. All Scripture is God breathes. And it's useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Total. The whole thing. So love God. Listen to the Bible. And then finally Jesus says, look, look with your eyes, look to the cross. And this is verses 27 through verse 31, the end of our passage. Now this passage concludes on something of a surprising note. Jesus says, let us arise or let us leave or let us go from here. And many people aren't quite sure why he says that at this point, but it actually all connects to this idea of looking to the cross, as I hope you'll see as we go through it. So Jesus first of all says, "Peace I leave with you. But peace not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled." So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that as he goes to the cross, all this section is here about Jesus leaving to go to the cross. As as he goes to the cross, he's going to leave with his disciples this gift of peace, not as the world gives, that is not circumstantial, not feelings, but an objective secure peace. Why? Because when he goes to the cross, He dies on the cross, he makes atonement for the sins of the world and establishes a secure and certain definite peace with God for those who will follow him. And what that means is this, as you look to the cross, whatever you're going through, however hard it is, however disturbing it is, you, when you look to the cross, have a reason, a source, a power for peace that is above all comprehension and understanding because your peace with God is secure. Peace. Joy. He's saying he's going to be the father and the disciples should really rejoice because as he goes to the father, the father is greater than I. Now what does he mean by great, the father is greater than I? Well, here's what he does not mean. He does not mean, cannot mean that the Father is somehow of a different essence to him or different standard to him or different status from him for Jesus has just said over and over again in this very chapter that the Father and I am one and he who has seen, seen me has seen the Father and the Father is in me and I in the Father so he cannot mean it's a different status or a different standard what does he mean? What he means is the same as he says elsewhere, which is when he goes back to be with the Father, so he's going to the cross, he's going to die, rise again, and then ascend to be with the Father. When he goes back to be with the Father, he will then have the glory that he had with the Father in the beginning. In other words, he's going to be glorified. And of course, those of us who love Jesus will rejoice at that, for that is our desire that Jesus would take central place, that truly the declaration that the resurrection makes, that he is the king of all kings, that is made, and therefore our hearts rejoice. And what that means is, whatever you're going through, however hard it is, as you look to the cross, you have reason for great joy, for Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and you're your heart is moved to rejoice for, for the kingdom of God is his. And, and he is worthy to be glorified every possible way. Of course you rejoice. Whatever it is you're going through right now. Peace, joy. And then, hope or confidence or courage. So Jesus says that the, 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 the ruler of this world is coming, but has no claim on him, the ruler of this world being the devil. So when Jesus goes to the cross, it looks like the devil is won, but no. At the cross is where the devil was defeated. And so, of course, every Christian can have great courage and great confidence, whatever. It, how Even if you feel like, and we are in a spiritual war as Christians, even if you feel like the, the devil himself is out to get you, that demons are attacking you, you know that at the cross, Jesus beats the devil, that he has established victory over the devil. As Paul says, at the cross, he made a public spectacle over the principalities and power, triumphing over them by the cross. And what that means is, Christian, that you have every reason for courage and confidence and hope. Whatever's going through, even if the devil himself is against you, but he is a defeated devil. Is that not true? So that courage and confidence rise in you as you look to the cross. And then we come to this last part of the passage where Jesus says something like it's translated in different ways in different versions come let us arise or let us let us leave now or it's time to leave or something like that why does he say this the reason why it's difficult to understand is because having said come let us arise Jesus carries on speaking for another two chapters it's a bit like those preachers who suddenly say and they look at their watch oh I'm going on a bit too long I better conclude now and then go on for another 25 minutes you know the type why does he suddenly say, let us arise? And then nothing, they don't actually leave for another couple of chapters. Different answers have been given to this now through church history and from various commentators. One common answer is that they do leave, but they leave on a journey. And so now in fifteen, sixteen, those chapters, they're walking together as Jesus talks. And then they finally leave. That's possible. But it seems an awfully long time for them to be walking together. But it's a possible answer. Another answer that people often give, it's a bit like they would say at a dinner party where the guests or the host say, you know, it's really getting late, perhaps we should perhaps we should be leaving, but then they they hang around for another hour or so just chatting because they're enjoying being there. Again, that's a possible answer. I think though, that Jesus is not so much talking about a physical leaving here as he's urging them to I'm going to the cross, come on then, let us all look to the cross. Let us arise and look to the cross. John Calvin put it like this. Having summarized all the different options for interpretation, he said, It seems more reasonable that Jesus is exhorting his followers to that obedience of which they are seeing such an exemplary case in Jesus himself. In other words, he loves God. He's going to the cross. Let us all then look to the cross. Of course, that's the answer to George, isn't it? It's not his own moral efforts. It's not what he has done and what he hasn't done. It's the cross of Jesus. There is the power Every. Christian leader of any substance has always realized this. Charles Spurgeon, when he announced in his first sermon in his church what became the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they changed their name there. It was Park Street Tabernacle for many years, and they changed their name. It became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. When Spurgeon announced his text that first Sunday, he said that he would always preach nothing but the cross of Jesus. May that be true for college church, always centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham, when he was thinking about what he was going to do in his last few years or so as a preacher, he said that he wanted to preach one more time on this text. I will boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross, you see. Look, look George. Look, George. How can you look at the cross. How can your heart be a stone anymore when you look at the blood of Jesus shed for you? Surely the Spirit of God will be at work in you to soften your heart and cause you to love him and listen to his word. Surely look to the cross, will you? And so we come to the end, love God, listen to the Bible, look to the cross, and let me leave you, let us arise, let us go, let me leave you with this final illustration. In uh, our English language, there is a word, it's obviously not an English word, but it's often used in the English language, that is employed or used when we want to say that we've really got it. Why do some people not get it? We use this word when you really do get it, when you've really found it, when you get it. And that word is Eureka! I've got it! Eureka! You probably know that the reason why I use that word goes back to a mathematician, a Greek mathematician called Archimedes. And the story is that Archimedes was trying to figure out a difficult problem in maths at the time. That is, how you measure the volume of irregular objects. And they didn't have an answer to that in those days. Archimedes, the story is was taking a bath. He got into the bath and he noticed he got in that water was displaced. And of course then he realized that the way to measure the volume of irregular objects was to measure the volume of water that was displaced when you immerse them in, in water. And it is said that Archimedes was so excited by this discovery that literally right there and then he leapt out of the bath, ran out onto the streets of Syracuse and shouted stark naked, Eureka! 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 Now, I'm not encouraging you, if you've really got it, Eureka means I've found it, oh I've got it. I'm not encouraging you, if you've really got it, to, as it were, run through the streets of Wheaton stark naked, especially not in March. But I do wonder whether, in a sense, there's any better word, if you do get it this morning, than Eureka found it. I've got it. I love him. I want his word and I'm looking to the cross. Even if you're a George. Let's pray together. Our oh Lord, as we look to the cross, we, um, we just love to give you glory and see that indeed you are glorified there. All the great things you've done. And we want to praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.